Well, good morning, y'all. Good to see you. It's been a great year together studying First and Second Corinthians. Uh, Paul founded this church, as you know. It was an amazing act of courage and love when he went there in the first place all by himself, eventually accompanied by Timothy and Titus. And then, of course, the church began to grow there, Priscilla and Aquila and others. And uh, you can go to Corinth today and see significant ruins still there. I hope you can do that someday. And uh, it stands as a, as a reminder of uh, the power of the gospel, no matter what the culture is. Corinth would be just about as far away as you could get from a Christian way of thinking and acting. And Paul goes there and evangelizes, leads people to Christ and establishes a church, and it becomes a powerful weapon in God's hand. We ought to be encouraged that here in Memphis, Tennessee, sometimes when you think it's just impossible uh, to lead people to Christ or to uh, see a following grow of the Lord Jesus or his mission here grow. Just remember Corinth. We've uh, been studying these two letters, which uh, we've seen are not actually first and second Corinthians, but second and fourth Corinthians, uh, and have learned so much from them as Paul has addressed the moral challenges, the spiritual and theological challenges that are in Corinth. And we've seen how they really stand at the very verge of unbelief and how Paul is so deeply concerned for them. And one of their uh, aspects of unbelief would be their lack of trust in Paul as a messenger of the gospel. And they're, they're endeared by these other people who come along and preach other messages and who are much more eloquent and more handsome and better trained, perhaps, uh, academically. And Paul has to defend his own apostolic office. We've seen that over and over again. And in 2 Corinthians, we've seen the heart of the apostle come out. And it gives us a, a view of how we ought to be looking at ourselves as Christian men. What ought to be motivating us? Because we've seen the heart and the motivations of the apostle in 2 Corinthians. And as Barton led us in the study last week in chapter 12, we've seen that at chapter 10, Paul takes up again the challenge of the significant minority in Corinth who have not yet repented, who have not yet received the true gospel message from the Apostle Paul and have not yet accepted his apostolic authority. And Paul has been basically warning them in chapters 10 through 12, and now he gets to chapter 13 as he finishes that argument. And we've seen his tone changes very much. He's speaking very gratefully and very tenderly with the church at large, but there is a significant minority. He's addressing them. And the reason he's addressing them primarily is because they misunderstand him because they see him as a weak man, because he's undergoing so many afflictions, so much opposition. He's not making any money off them, so he's poor. And they say, this couldn't possibly be the messenger of God. They're used to Hermes or some strong Hercules or some kind of God that will come down and strike uh, bolts of lightning upon their opponents. And Paul comes in a very, very different way. And so they don't understand him. And because they don't understand him, Paul knows they don't understand Christ. Because that's exactly the way Christ came to us. He came to us in weakness, born as a babe in Bethlehem, uh, living a perfect life, and yet uh, he, he was abused by all the authorities around him. And he appeared to be weak to those who didn't trust him and know him as he really was. And so if you don't understand Paul's type of ministry, you don't understand the one he's proclaiming. Paul knew this. He knew that their souls were on the line. So we're going to see in this closing argument in chapter 13, Paul finishes his instructions to them, his appeal to them, and then, of course, he turns to the whole church and 
blesses them in the name of the Lord Jesus. These are very important warnings for us, as we'll see in our text. They're also, it's an important example for us as we go about our ministry. Are you trying to carry out your ministry with show of, of fleshly strength? Uh, by the power of wealth or the, the power of oratory or some other uh, human power? Or are you really seeking to carry out the ministry by the power of Christ? And we saw last week, the power of Christ is expressed through our human weakness and our acknowledgement of our own weakness. That's when Christ powerfully works through us. So these are the arguments Paul has been making, and he brings these arguments to a head in chapter 13, as we shall see. So let's look at this last chapter. And by the way, before we look here, let me just say I'm excited about next year too. We're going to be studying uh, the life of David, a man after God's own heart, First and Second Samuel. And as you know, if you've read First and Second Samuel lately, there's a lot there. We're going to have to race through it and just hit the highlights of First and Second Samuel. We'll also be sprinkling in the Psalms because you have over 70 Psalms that David wrote, and we'll be looking at where those Psalms fit. In other words, what was the historical context in which these Psalms were written? So those will be provided for us too. So it'll be First and Second Samuel and some of the Psalms, and we'll get to see how God was working through the life of David. And of course, the ultimate point is that God chose David because ultimately he would send David's greater son, the Lord Jesus. And we'll see the life of Christ suffused through First and Second Samuel. So it'll be a great study. Looking forward to it. Well, let's look at Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. All right. Let's look at verses 1 through 10, and we see here we must test ourselves. We must test ourselves. It doesn't matter so much really whether others test you, it's you're testing yourself. And you must learn how to do that and how to grade yourself properly. 
We'll see how the apostle brings that to bear. He says ultimately that he's testing them with his writing, but they must learn to test themselves. Now notice in verses 1 and 2 that in testing ourselves, we are responsible for the whole church. We are responsible for the whole church. Now look at this verse 1. He says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. So Paul has been there twice before, once to establish the church, and then a brief visit that's alluded to here. Obviously, he had a second brief visit. So this will be the third time he goes to them. Then look at this next verse. He says, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, where's that coming from? Well, that seems to make no sense. Hey, I'm going to come see you for the third time. Every charge must be (laughs) evidenced by two or three witnesses. What's he saying? Uh, He is quoting here, of course, Deuteronomy chapter 19, and we studied this uh, a few years ago in Deuteronomy. Paul is citing an Old Testament principle that when you bring charges against someone, you must have two or three witnesses. If you're the only one charging them, it's not going to be received in the courts. It's going to be thrown out as as, uh, unprovable. Now, why is he citing that principle from Deuteronomy? The reason is he is saying to those who are holding out on him, with whom he's disagreeing. He's saying, look, I'm dealing with you pastorally. I'm writing you this letter. I've spent time with you personally. Ultimately, if you do not repent, there are going to be charges against you. And there's going to be a church court trial on this. And then Timothy is a witness, Titus is a witness, and I'm going to be a witness. There are three witnesses right there. And and there are going to be charges brought up against you in the church. You say, wow, he's serious. Yeah, look back at 1 Corinthians 5. You better believe you're serious. The church must be serious. The biggest problem in our country today, let me tell you what it is. It's the church. The church not being what the church is supposed to be. Uh, I was uh, reading around several places and came across this uh, from David Wells, one of my old professors, and speaking about the church. He says, the church must become courageous enough to say that much that is taken as normative in the world is actually sinful. And it will have to exercise, that is, the church will have to exercise new ingenuity in learning how to speak about sin to a generation for whom sin has become an impossibility. Without an understanding of sin, there can be no deep believing of the gospel. The church itself is going to have to become more authentic morally, for the greatness of the gospel is now seen to have become quite trivial and inconsequential in its life. If the gospel means so little to the church, if it changes so little, why then should unbelievers believe it? It is one thing to understand what Christ's deliverance means. It is quite another to see this worked out in life with depth and reality, to see its moral splendor. That is what makes the gospel so attractive. The evangelical church today, with some exceptions, is not very inspiring in this regard. Much of it, instead, is replete with tricks, gadgets, gimmicks, marketing ploys, as it shamelessly adapts itself to our emptied-out, blinded, postmodern world. It is supporting a massive commercial enterprise of Christian products. It is filling the airwaves and stuffing postal boxes. And it is always begging for money to fuel one entrepreneurial scheme after another. But it is not morally resplendent. It is mostly empty of real moral vision. And without a recovery of that vision, its faith will soon disintegrate. There is too little about it that bespeaks the holiness of God. 
And without the vision for and reality of this holiness, the gospel becomes trivialized. Life loses its depth. God becomes transformed into a product to be sold. Faith into a recreational activity to be done. And the church into a club for the like-minded. That's from David Wells, Losing Our Virtue, Why the Church Must Recover Its Moral Vision, published in 1998. So, 15 years ago, it's still true, isn't it? And Paul is saying to them, look, we're responsible for the whole church. So when you become a believer, you devote your body and soul to the Lord. You say, Lord, take me, cleanse me, renew me, empower me, make me a man of God. Make me a man who is a holy man in an unholy society. And then he joins you to the church. And you say, Lord, use me as an instrument of transformation in your church. Now, you know, of course, I care about the church. I get paid by the church. You know, I'm, I'm a professional, if you will. But every believer, regardless of your, your occupation, you belong to the church. This is your family, and you have a concern for it. We would be irresponsible fathers if something were going on in our families, and we just seem to have no concern about it. We said, oh, that's none of my business. Even when your children are adult children, you don't have any authority over them. But you don't say it's none of my business or I don't care. Brothers, we're in a church body whose head is Christ. And he cares about that body and he's put us in there to take responsibility for it. So Paul is taking responsibility for the whole church. Not just because he planted it, but because he's a member of it. Just as we are. And you see here, he intends to take this all the way to church court. Now, most of us in our churches would have no idea what a church court is. Why? Because in our churches, most of them just sweep sin under the rug. We don't really think that we're responsible as a church to repent of our sins. We don't think that we're responsible to intervene on one another. Now, if you've been in AA and you've, or you've struggled with alcoholism yourself, you understand what an intervention is. And you're all for it. You're grateful for people who love you enough to sit down with you and intervene on you when you are abusing drugs and ruining your family life and your marriage and your own personal life. What love when someone will risk their relationship with you, sit down with you, and say, this has got to stop. We all understand that in AA. But for some reason, when it comes to any other sin, we don't understand it. We don't want anybody involved in our lives. But when you come into a church, the purpose of that church is to be a mighty weapon in God's hand, is to be a holy body. Even though we're not perfect, we are growing in holiness together. So in your churches, we all must influence and encourage the church to be accountable to one another. There are all kinds of things going on in churches in East Memphis right this minute. All kinds of unfaithfulness, all kinds of crookedness, all kinds of fraud. And we're very disappointed over it. We think it's a shame, don't we? But how many times have we actually gotten ourselves involved in it? Well, you say, our church hasn't structured itself so that we know how to intervene. Well, beg your pastor that you would learn how to do that. There are a few churches that do it. Beg your pastor to learn from the other churches how to do that so that we can understand what Paul is saying. Most churches wouldn't even understand what he means, that it takes two or three witnesses. What is he talking about? Because we have no idea of what mutual discipline in the body of Christ should look like. Paul believes in it. Paul exercises it. Paul is warning here of serious action that will be taken against them. 
because he realizes we're not just a collection of individuals. We are the, the actual body of Christ. We are responsible for the whole church. Now, in verses 3 and 4, secondly, notice that we often think it's the other guy who needs testing. <laughs> Paul is saying, y'all think I'm the one who needs to be tested. And he says, okay, you're seeking proof that Christ is speaking in me. So these people are guilty of major theological error. Major theological error. They're, they're eliminating an apostle who is an organ of God's revelation. That's, that's one theological error. And then they have created for themselves a different gospel. That's the worst theological error. And they're saying, we're not sure you're speaking in the name of Christ. So, Paul, we want to test you. Well, Paul keeps speaking about it. He says, uh, he, he is not weak in dealing with you, that is Christ, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. Paul is saying, get your eyes on the real Christ. You would have thought he was weak too. You would have dismissed him too. But actually, he was God's presence in us uh, and among us in power. And he says, he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. And then we also. So Paul says, we're following Christ. So in Christ, we also in this life are weak in him. But in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. So he's saying, just as Christ was both weak and strong, so also I am weak and strong. So humanly speaking, the way that men are measured, you will think I'm weak. But Christ is going to work his power through his word and by the power of his spirit among us. So Paul is saying, uh, you, you think I'm the one who needs to be tested. Well, here's why, because you misjudge the nature of Christian ministry itself. But look at verse 5. Thirdly, it's not the other guy, it's you, buddy. He says, examine yourselves. As David Garland puts it in his commentary, he says, the important question is not whether Christ is speaking in Paul, but whether Christ is living in them. He says, you examine yourselves, you test yourselves. And this word test yourselves is a word that, that speaks of approving yourselves. You, you show whether you're it or not, the real thing. And Paul says, the real question is not me, it's you. And he says, test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So he's saying, when you test yourselves, I want you to find Christ in there. And it's the Christ I'm talking about, who humbled himself and was weak in this world and who was resurrected to power and who works in us the same way. You see that Christ is in you. That's the Christ that's in me. And he says, of course, unless you fail the test, that is, maybe you're not in Christ. And if you don't understand this gospel I'm preaching, I'm not sure that Christ is in you, he's saying to them. So test yourselves. Be Honest with yourselves. You know, one of the, the factors of a, a level five leader uh, uh, is that he faces brutal facts. And really successful businesses always face brutal facts. They don't sweep them under the rug. Face brutal facts in yourselves. Have you really received Jesus Christ? When you look inside yourself, you test yourself. Do you find Christ? The most important exam you could ever take is that self-exam. And doctors, you know, teach uh, folks how to self-examine if they're good doctors. You need to be looking out for yourself, taking care of your own body. Paul is saying, take care of your soul. Learn to test yourselves. Now, you say, how do I do this? How do I test myself? Well, uh, 
there are several ways to do this. First of all, the Bible simply says, uh, whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And if you believe in Him, you will be saved. Do you believe in Him? Do you really trust Him? Are you leaning on Him? You say, yes, I think I am, but I'm not real sure. What, what, what else can I do? Well, if you turn to 1 John, you'll find that that letter is written by John to help us know that we have eternal life. He says, I write these things uh, to you that you may know that you have eternal life. So it's written for the purpose of testing yourself and knowing. In that letter, you'll find three major tests. You'll find other minor ones, but three major tests. First of all, is your faith conformed to gospel faith in the Scriptures? In other words, do you really believe the real Christ who's revealed in the Bible? That's the first one. If you have major doctrinal errors, then you should question whether you really know Christ. So there are such things as cardinal uh, doctrinal beliefs. That's the first test. Second test, are you walking in the light? Is there some area of your life you refuse to have Christ come in and shine the light on? If you're holding Him out unrepentantly over a long period of time, you should suspect that maybe you don't have Christ in your life. Now, I'm not talking about those of you who are drug addicted, that you've three or four times fallen off the wagon, uh, or alcohol, that you found yourself with a major struggle there, or pornography, that you know every couple of weeks you, you fall again and you repent, feel so sorry. No, the repentance is what is showing that you're, you're really in Christ. A sincere desire to turn away from your sin. Of course, if you're sincerely turning away from it, you'll burn some bridges. You'll get covenant eyes and have that, uh, all your sights copied over to a friend so they can see what you've been viewing the past week. That's the way you'll deal with it if you're really repenting. So what you do is you look at your life and you say, I know I'm not perfect, but am I authentically following Christ? So my life, if I'm going in this direction, I'll go this way and then I'll go this way and I'll go this way and I keep getting corrected. But that's the trajectory. I'm going toward Christ. That's authentic repentance. And John says that if you walk in the light, then you are sons of God. The third test he gives us is the test of love. Do you love the brethren? I'm talking about converted people. Do you have a special love for Christ's people? You say, man, they're hard to deal with. Hey, look, tell me about it, would you? Uh, I mean, you know, that's the, that's the reason Paul says don't let immature people be elders and deacons because if you do, they're going to be shocked by what they see in the church. They're going to say, what? You, this is the organization I've, I've begun to be a part of? Uh, yeah, of course. There are all kinds of, and we're crazy people. Yeah, you got it over here. There's one over there. Uh, so the church, yes, is wild and woolly, but they're God's people. They're God's people. As one of my friends says, the church may be a whore, but she's your mother. Uh, and that's about the size of it. So we learn to love our mother. And she does go after all kinds of false gods. She does disprove the gospel at times, it seems. All kinds of things. But we love people. We love all people. But we have a special affection for those who have become Christians, who, have, who are in Christ, who belong to Him, whom He has obviously chosen out of the world for His own treasure possession. We love what He loves, basically. That's what it amounts to. And so John says, look, if you have a special love, for God's people, I'll tell you where that came from. It didn't come from below, and it didn't come from your flesh. It came from above. Uh, you don't have that love. You, you usually hold people in contempt for their uh, discipleship in Christ unless you yourself are a disciple. 
So these are the kinds of tests that you can apply to yourself. Do I sense that going on in my life? If I don't, perhaps I've not received Christ. That's the reason for the test. The ultimate reason for the test is for you to find Christ, as Paul says here. You'll find Christ in there when you test yourself, believers, and you need to come out of that self-examination grateful that you belong to the Lord. You found Christ in your own life. He may have been obscured by many of your knucklehead behaviors and your crazy beliefs and actions and thoughts, but you can find Christ in there when you apply these tests. Now, the ultimate test, of course, is simply a spiritual one. You know Him because you know Him because you know Him. Paul says, God's Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are the sons of God. And I know because I know because I know. So ultimately, the deepest form of assurance of salvation is the spiritual assurance that comes from just walking with Him and knowing Him. But you have these other logical tests and behavioral tests that can help you out. Paul is saying, test yourself. And brothers, test yourself today. Don't walk out of here without asking yourself some serious questions. Am I really authentically in Christ and following Him? And if not, I beg you to see any of us here who know Him and ask us for help as to how you may know Him personally. You can test yourself with the Ten Commandments. Just go right straight through them and say, are are these commandments, although I break them every day and it grieves my heart, are they basically definitive of my life? If someone looks at my life and tries to define me with it, would it have anything to do with the Ten Commandments? So just take each of those commandments and search your own heart and life and see if there's any trajectory toward that commandment in your heart. And this is the way you examine to see if you are in Christ. Now, the test here specifically for the apostle is whether they're going to obey the apostle. And he's saying, look, you've put put me in the dock. You've put me under trial. Well, I'm going to switch this around. You're under trial. Because I'm giving you the real gospel and I'm giving you real Christian ethics and the question is, are you believing and doing what I'm saying? That's the test. So he turns it right on them and he lets them know there's going to be a church discipline court if there's not repentance soon because this has been going on long enough. So he's asking them whether they're following him. Now what would be the parallel in our own day? We, whole churches need to be tested. If some church is saying, you know, we don't really believe in the bodily resurrection, or it's okay if you believe that myth, but, you know, for everybody else who's enlightened, we understand that this is a spiritual concept. You know, we believe in the the myth of the tooth fairy or the myth of Santa Claus so that we'll be kind to each other. And so we believe in the myth of the resurrection so that we'll all have hope. That's what we want. Well, let me tell you something. Hope without a bodily resurrection is nothing. It's worse than hope. It's a fantasy. It's a it's a it's a terrible, terrible joke being played on us by the evil one. And so there are churches who don't believe in the bodily resurrection. They flunk the test. They are not Christian. I'm telling you, if a church denies the bodily resurrection, it is no longer a church. That's the reason the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is stressing this with the church. He says, if in this life only we have put our hope in Christ, we are all people most to be pitied. We're not a church. We're to be pitied above all the pagans because we're playing some moral game. has nothing to do with reality. So the bodily resurrection. What about a church that denies the authority and the truthfulness of the Scriptures? It loses its insignia as a church. Well, let me get a little bit more contemporary. What about churches who who twist the sexual ethic of the Bible and say that, you know, I think it's fine if someone lives together 
in sexual intimacy without the covenant of marriage. And some churches are saying that's okay. And they take people into their churches who are doing that without repentance. They cease to be a church. Do you understand this? When you deny something that's clearly stated in the Scriptures, you look it right in the eye and you say, I ain't going there and I'm going to call myself a Christian, you've just become a hypocrite, not a Christian. If you say, where the, when, even though the Bible, in every case when it mentions homosexual behavior, you say, well, yeah, I know that, but there are certain ways of looking at it, and on and on you go, and you get this high-wire exegesis. You have to have 15 years of graduate study to figure out how to deny it, and it's so obvious in the Bible, and you say, we're going to do it because the whole culture is, is doing it. You've just ceased to be a church. Amen. I'm just saying it. If you deny biblical ethic, when it's clearly in the Scriptures, you have turned your back on the Christian faith and become another religion. And there are churches in this city that belong to another religion who call themselves Christian. Now, this is the kind of discernment and distinction that Paul is making in this epistle. And I want to encourage you, take these things seriously. He is not playing a game here. He realizes that souls are at stake. And I'm telling you they are. Because, just, just take the last issue I mentioned the one of homosexual behavior. Now, the, in a room this size, there are several of us who have same-sex attraction. He's not talking about same-sex uh, attraction. I have opposite-sex attraction. At least, so far, it's been that way. Uh, and it really is irrelevant. What, here's what's relevant. What do I do with it? Am I seeking to, make, to live a faithful life with my wife, or if I'm single, am I celibate? It doesn't matter where I'm. Same, same self attracted or opposite sex attracted. As long as I am celibate and I'm walking with the Lord and seeking to please Him with my body. So I'm not saying to any of you who are uh, same sex attracted that you're, you're worse than the rest of us. I'm just simply saying you've got to do what everybody else is supposed to do, and that is to be faithful with our sexual ethic. And for heaven's sakes, if you teach the Bible, you better teach it faithfully. Because the apostle says, if you turn your back on this ethic, you have no place in the kingdom of God. Now he says this about swindlers and about greedy people as well. So if we were to say, hey, you know, we live in the richest uh, nation in the history of the world, and we actually live in a fairly prosperous neighborhood, and isn't God good? He just, in his providence, he put us here to enjoy these things and to show the rest of the world that if they worked hard, they could be successful too. You just denied the gospel. You just became something else. If you say, you know, race relations don't have anything really to do with me. I just like people of my own color and my own ethnic background and, my, and on my own socioeconomic group. I like people that go to my country club. I just like dealing with people like myself. You've just denied the gospel. You've become something else. So any church that looks at an ethical norm that is in the Scriptures and says, I'm not going to do that, you've just joined another religion. That's what Paul is saying. That this can't go on forever. And he's going to confront the church and let them know they're no longer the church. Or that they need to split up. And those who really want to walk with Jesus, you be the church. And other ones, go start another religion. That's what's coming if they don't repent, this minority. That's how serious this is. And what I find in the, in the church today is that we consider the church just, you know, it's another club. You know, another group, we're associating with people that we like to do things with. I like to play golf with these people, tennis with these people, sing some hymns with these people. And, you know, those are just people I like to be with. No, when you belong to the church, you have, belong, you have joined a divine organization whose head is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he had 12 apostles and he sent them out to give us doctrine and practice. And we've got to stick to it. That's what Paul is saying here. Test yourselves. 
Test your church. Test your life. Be sure that you're in Christ and you know Him and love Him. Now, fourthly, verses 6 through 10, he's saying Christian leadership is often misunderstood. Christian leadership is often misunderstood. That is, they're misunderstanding Him. And in verses 6 and 7, first of all, he says, it's about the sanctification of others, not our reputation. And I say this because he says, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. In other words, he's saying, I hope you discover that we real apostles, not these super apostles you're traipsing after, but I hope you find that the real apostles are the real apostles, that when you find Christ, you'll find that's the Christ they preach to me. So when you find Christ in your life, you'll know it came to you through someone who is weak on the outside, like the Apostle Paul, but who had the strength of God in his life, who bore up for affli- from afflictions because of the strength of God in his life. I hope that we pass the test in your life. So Paul says, anybody would want that. I want that with you as a teacher this morning. I hope that you find my teaching useful. Fine. But he goes on to say this, but we pray to God that you may, do, that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test. In other words, the the real test is not whether you like your teacher or whether you even like the apostle. He says, here's the real concern, that you may do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. So in other words, he's saying, look, the point is not that I'll be popular. The point is that you'll be saved, whether you consider my passing the test or not. I'm not concerned whether you think I passed the test. What I'm concerned about is you pass your test. Now, there is the heart of a Christian leader. Brothers, do you see it? So often when we're in leading small groups or teaching Sunday school, so often we're just way too sensitive to whether people liked us or not. And listen, I understand it. I'm a public teacher too. I know those feelings. I know those temptations. But the Christian leaders got to rise above those things. There's something much more important then whether you're a good teacher or a popular teacher or whether people accept you into their social group, there's something far more important than this. And that is the people you're talking to, you're going to see them in heaven or not. When George Whitfield was preaching the gospel uh, 300 years, uh, 200, uh, 250 years ago, and people were throwing dead cats at him and rocks at him and all manner of thing and holding him in high contempt because he preached the law and the gospel. He told them why they needed to be saved, and then he told them how to be saved. And some people hated it. And George Whitfield cried out, you can throw your dead cats at me. You can throw your bricks, bricks at me. But one thing, one thing I can't stand is the thought of going to heaven without you. Now, here's the heart of a Christian leader. He's, he loves sinners. Even people like this who are rejecting his apostolic office, he loves them. And he says, the real point is not whether you receive me as a person, but whether you receive Christ. That's his concern. Now, secondly, notice that a Christian leader is bound by truth. Paul says, look, I'd love to be popular with you. I'd I'd love for, for you to know that I love you. I'd love for us to be friends. But one thing I refuse to do is to change the truth in, in the least little bit. I'm bounded by the truth. I'm obligated to the truth. My conscience is bound by what the Scriptures say. He says, we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. And gentlemen, when you're seeking to help somebody, what will help them is not your slicked down, airbrushed version of what might sneak them into the kingdom of heaven. What they need from you is your loving communication of the real truth of the gospel, even though it may mean rejection of you. 
So when you are leading in Christ, you are suppressing your own desire to be popular, and you are binding yourself to the Word of God and the truth as you know it, as you convey it to other people. That's exactly what the apostle is doing, and that's the reason that you and I are saved, is because people like that were faithful to the truth and gave us the whole story. Thirdly, we are weak that others may be strong. We are not strong so that others may be proven weak. And that's what most leaders in this world do. They try to dominate you. They try to intimidate you. They try to show you that they're the strong ones and you're the weak ones under them. And that the reason they are in leadership is that they're stronger than you are. And they have to continue to show you that, how strong they are, how smart they are, how powerful they are, and how less than that you are. Paul says Christian leadership is just the other way, that the leader is the weak one for the sake of the strength of the other people. The Christian leader is always elevating people up over his head, lifting them up. And you'll find in the best organizations, businesses and professional organizations, they're led by people who love to see people move on ahead of them. They're not keeping everybody under them. There's an updraft when you get around a real Christian leader who wants to see people elevated, even if it means they lose them to their organization so that that man may go on and serve in a broader way somewhere else. That's the heart of a Christian leader. That's the heart of the Apostle Paul here. And then notice, fourthly, in verse 10, we prefer to edify gently. He says, for this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. He says, I'd rather not confront you. I'd rather not have a showdown. I'd rather deal with you gently. I want you to read this letter. I want you to think about it so that when we get together, we can have real camaraderie. Paul is looking for the gentlest way to make his point. And you say, boy, this is, if that's gentility, I don't know what strength is, you know? Well, you you got to take into account the measure of the resistance he's got here. This is very serious business by a very large minority. And he's having to exercise his authority. But he's pleading with them, don't take me to the mat on this one. Don't take me all the way to the wall because there will be three witnesses and you'll be charged and you'll be out. So he's pleading with them not to get there. So you see, he knows he's got the power of Christ in his life and he knows that he can confront, but he just doesn't want to. Gentlemen, when you're dealing with people around you, do you always look for the gentlest way to bring correction? Is that always in your mind? How's the most respectful, gentlest way to bring correction here, whether it's in your home or in your business. Are you thinking that way? So often I'll I'll see controversy, and sometimes it's in the church. Even this past week, uh, I'm a board member of, uh, or a council member of the the Gospel Coalition. We've had a major controversy this, this past week. We've actually had several of them. And sometimes you'll find even men who are in ministry, They'll just take on each other in unnecessarily confrontational, harsh ways in public. There's no reason for this. We always look for the gentlest, most discreet, private way to resolve things so that the damage doesn't spread among the whole populace. Paul is being as gentle as he knows how to be, saying, please read this letter. Please get ready because I don't want to have to exercise uh, authority that would be hurtful to you. Well, We've seen then that we must learn how to test ourselves. It's very, very important, and that includes testing our churches. But notice in verses 11 through 14, the second major major category here is we must be the church. It's, It's good to test the church. 
It's good to test ourselves. But then let's follow Christ. Let's not just stay there testing. Let's be what we want to be. And it's, you, this is a rare text where we're told to test or examine yourself. It's, it's important to self-examine, but you don't find it often in the Bible. What you find often in the Bible is what we're going to get in verses 11 through 14. Let's be the people of God. Let's not just have a good defense. Let's be on offense. Let's score some points. Uh, let, let's put some points up on the board. Here's how you do it. First of all, rejoice. As was prayed earlier this morning, rejoice. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Now, Paul, at verse 11, most scholars suggest he's now turning from the large minority who are in rebellion. Now he turns to the whole church in his mind. Now he's talking to the whole body. And he's saying to all of them, finally, brothers, rejoice. Notice he calls them brothers, all of them. Until we have that trial and someone's excommunicated, you're my brother. So he's talking to all the church, including those in rebellion, calls them brothers. So as long as you're in the church, you're brother, and we're to treat each other that way. Finally, brothers, rejoice. And you say, why would they rejoice after getting a letter like this? Well, if you're in Christ, here's why. Because number one, no matter what you're going through, Christ is with you. He's your friend. And His presence is the joy of every condition, as the old Presbyterian liturgy says. The presence of Christ is the joy of every condition. Every condition. Cancer, bereavement, financial collapse. Christ is the joy of every condition. So you rejoice, as Paul says elsewhere, always. He says, it, he says I'll say it again. Rejoice always. Always. In every circumstance. You say, man, that's hard to do. Yeah, it is when you're thinking about your loss in this world. But when you're thinking about your gain in the next world, that's what causes you to rejoice. You have Christ with you, empowering you. He loves you. You've got His, His affections. So you take your eyes off the wind and the waves when, as Peter, you find yourself sinking, and you get your eyes back on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll find yourself walking on the water. So get your eyes on Christ and your joy in Him. Think about the day to come. Hey, let me tell you something. Every one of you is going to be deader than a doornail in just a short while. Most of you will go after I do. But all of you are going to go. Every one of you. You say, thanks for the little you know, boost to my emotional life this morning. Well, yeah, here's how you get your boost to your emotional life. You face the worst news you've got, that you're dead. And you realize that's not the end for you. It's the beginning of the happiest experience you've ever had in your life. You have no idea how happy this is. When you're going to be in the presence of the Lord without sin, without corruption, without pain, without sorrow, without any estrangement with anybody, everything is in harmony with Him. And you contemplate that. And when you do, that brings you joy. If you're on a really tough trip and the plane is bouncing all over the place and you're getting sick, but you're going to see your lover... Hey, it'll all work out in the end, right? You'll get there. It's going to be worth it, right? All right. So here we go through this life. We're in the wilderness, but we're coming to the promised land. So if you're going to the promised land and you know it, Christ is in you, then you will rejoice always in every circumstance. That's what Paul is saying. Here's what it means to be a church. Rejoice. It's one of the dominant realities of any Christian man and any Christian communion. They're a joyful community in every circumstance. Secondly, he says, aim for restoration. Repent. 
So in your joy, aim for restoration. The old NIV said aim for perfection. But I think restoration is a better word here. And if you look at the other ways in the Scriptures in which this word is used, I think you would agree. But the idea is like a broken arm to be, to be knitted up together again, to be restored. So you take your broken life and you put it back together again. Now, let me just ask you, if, some, if I were to ask one of your best friends, what's the aim of his life? What would your best friend say? If I asked your best friend, what do you think so-and-so is really trying to accomplish in life? What's bullseye for him? What would they say? Here's what the apostle is saying. You be sure in your mind you know that bullseye is looking like Jesus Christ. That's what you're aiming for. That's the target. And most guys, they have several targets. Some of them are pretty good and some of them are not so good. They're trying to hit several targets at one time and they got two big problems. Number one, they got more than one target. And number two, they don't have the right target. The big target is Christ. That's what it's all about. And Paul is just saying, look guys, can I summarize everything for you? Everything that we've been saying in First and Second Corinthians, all my visits with you, all my preaching, could I summarize it for you? Aim for Christ. Aim to be restored like Him. That is restoration. To be like Christ and to know Him. So to know Him and to become like Him, that's the whole story. What is your life all about? The gospel aim is to become like Christ. Now thirdly, he says reunite. He says you've all been divided. Some of you have gotten to the Lord's Supper early. You've had the Lord's Supper before everybody else got there. You went in the back room and got drunk together. And then the people who had to work all day, they came in sober and tired. And there you were already inebriated in the back room. So you've been divided. Some of you have picked your Sunday school teacher and you said, Apollos is our man. Others of you picked Peter and said, Cephas is our man. And so you've divided up your church into little thought groups based on who your leader was. He says, let's be done with all that that divides us. Let's be reunited. Now you say, how do you do that? Glad you asked. Look at the text. He says, first of all, comfort one another. Guys, when your friend has a funeral, I mean someone in his family died, do you realize it's a spiritual ministry can I even say it? An obligation for us to find ways to comfort each other? Do you send him a note? Do you go to the funeral? Do you go to the visiting hours? If someone had a rough day and you know about it, you just send them an email and say, I'm just thinking about you. I want you to know I'm praying for you. We are to comfort one another. That's what builds the unity in the body is that we share each other's sorrows. You say, I'm not real good at that. I understand this. It's something you must cultivate. And there are some guys who will be far better at it than you are. I, I look in our church, there, there are so many men who are much more sensitive to this than I am. Well, what do I do? I just take my knuckle-headed self and I study them. Lord, help me at least to begin to be more like them so that I can be more like you. So learn from others how to express sympathy and comfort, strengthen one another. Secondly, agree with one another. You say, that's going to be impossible. We're Scottish. We're Presbyterians. We don't agree with anybody on anything. I don't even agree with myself half the time. And that's true. So what does he mean? He doesn't mean here you agree in every respect. The, the, the language here actually is be of one mind. In other words, you've got one worldview 
you've got one view of Christ the Lord, you've got one view of the kingdom and of the Great Commission, and you together in one mind are resolving your petty little differences so that you can carry out the big and grand ideas with which we agree in the Scriptures. That's what it means to be unified. It's a sense of nobility that you're able to rise up to 30,000 feet and see what is an important idea and what is not really a very important idea. And whether you have 50 parking spaces or 40 parking spaces is not worth splitting your session over. And yet that's the kind of trash they split over over and over again in churches. It's because of the lack of high-mindedness among Christian men. We're supposed to be of one mind. That means that we'll find the major things that we agree upon and we'll be gentle with one another and negotiate and, and compromise in the lesser things just like a good marriage. We'll live in peace. We will seek the peace and prosperity of one another. Shalom is the Hebrew word. Here, arene is the Greek word. Peace just means God's prosperity and God's wholeness and completeness and lack of hostility and all the rest. So we're wishing upon one another a full and complete life. We're blessing each other in the name of the Lord. And that comes from us continually. Words of encouragement, words of blessing. It's just like a healthy family. He's saying in the church, you've got to live this way. It's got to be your dominant theme in the church. And he says, when you do that, the God of love and peace will be with you. And he goes on to say, greet one another with a holy kiss. You say, oh man, I wish you hadn't said that. It's not our custom, is it, for men to kiss the men? Uh, I'll never forget about, well, over 20 years ago, my first trip to Ukraine. And I was speaking evangelistically in a town hall. They had never, I don't think they'd ever heard the gospel, these people in western Ukraine. And the mayor who was there was so thrilled to have the gospel preached in his old town. He came up to me afterwards to thank me. And he just grabbed me by the head and kissed me right on the lips. I didn't say thank you. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get that out. <laughs> different, different cultures have different habits. Uh, but of course, in other parts of Europe, you, know, you kiss on the cheek uh, twice, you know, whatever. Uh, this is a cultural expression, and here's what it means. Treat each other like family. Because it's the way families treated each other. So whatever our family habits are, that is the way that we express good, decent affection in family circles, that's what you express in church. So you work it out as brother and sister in the church. That's what he's saying. So we reunite as family across all national boundaries, ethnic boundaries, as much as is appropriate across gender boundaries, socioeconomic boundaries. We become family. We do not allow anything to hold us back from being fully brother and sister with any believer in our churches and we invite more to come in. Now, lastly, he says, not only do you rejoice, repent, and reunite, but you got to receive. Receive what? Receive the greetings from other saints. Receive the blessing from them. You know, when someone pronounces a benediction in your church, do you really receive it? Or do you say, oh gosh, that's just an old human. That's Wilson again. What does he know? He can't bless me. Well, of course he can't bless you, but the Lord can bless you. And all Wilson's doing is pronouncing what the Lord is doing in your life, and you got to learn to receive that from sinful people like me. And you've got to learn to receive words of encouragement from people who may even have mixed motives. Maybe they're trying to flatter you just a little bit, but there's still a nugget of true encouragement in there. And you've got to receive that. You've got to let us know that you actually need us. 
And that therefore you receive gifts of mercy and love and sympathy. You let your heart be consoled by the love that's in the church, just like a healthy person does in his own nuclear family. If you say to your family, kids, I'm here to serve you. I want to put you through college and I just want you to know I don't need a dang thing from you. That's really dysfunctional and unloving because you're saying to your kids you have no need of them. That's very unloving to do. And some people go to church that way and they don't want to be dependent. Well, you are. You're dependent upon the Lord and one of the ways in which He's ministering to you is to give you family. And you need to receive from them these greetings and these blessings. Then ultimately, look at this. Grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. He's saying receive the love of God. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace. You don't deserve His love. You don't deserve to have Him die on the cross for you. No, of course not. You deserve His wrath. But look what He's done. He's given you His blood and His righteousness. He's given you remission of all your sins and His perfect righteousness He's given to you on, on your account in heaven. He's done that. That's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the love of God. He actually has affection for you. He wants you in His family. He wants to walk with you and talk with you and live life with you. Wow, the living God wants to do that. And then the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who brought tongues of fire on the heads of the apostles on the day of Pentecost. That Holy Spirit, He wants to be with you today, live in you, empower in you, work through you in life. Yeah, that's what He wants to do. Will you receive it? That's the big question. So Paul turns to the whole church and says, Brothers, please, remember this. Rejoice. Repent of your sins. You've been given the gift of repentance. Reunite with each other's family and receive the benediction. So the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your word what a pleasure it is for us to sit before you and to look at these two great letters which you inspired in the heart and mind of the Apostle Paul. And 2,000 years later, to hear the Word, the true Word of God, how good and gracious you are to us, Lord. And we pray now that you will cause our hearts to rejoice, enable us to repent as we receive the Word and remember what you've done for us and resolve again to go into a world to be your salt and light. Thank you for these men. Please, Lord, bless their lives and all of their relationships. Please bless their businesses, their daily efforts, their families and marriages, their girlfriends, those who are single, uh, those who have strained relations with historic family ties, all of the problems that we face. Lord, grant us the grace to remember that it is through our weakness that the strength of the gospel is made known. We commit ourselves to you again now and throughout this summer and pray that we may live for you every day for the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.